From the studios of KALW in San Francisco, I'm Angie Cuero, and this is In Deep, one full hour on one intriguing topic. Welcome. The American people divide into three groups. One group is certain there's something deeply wrong and deeply dangerous with Donald Trump. A second group is concerned, but they're not sure. The third group of our citizens cannot be persuaded that he's a danger to our lives and country. This hour may not do much for that latter group, but for groups one and two, a new documentary will be of deep interest, Unfit, the Psychology of Donald Trump. Unfit is a catalog of mental evaluations and concerns, and maybe less expected, the history of the strongman of authoritarianism, its mindset, and its track record of terrifying the world. Some of this you may be familiar with. Some of it may be new to you. All of it is critical information with the election just a matter of weeks away. My guest this hour is Dan Parland. He's director and producer of Unfit. He has a long resume as a TV and film producer and director, dating back to 1995 Sundance winner, Welcome to the Dollhouse. He has multiple Emmys in his pocket for his TV work, including the 60s on CNN, American Race with Charles Barkley, and Intervention on A&E. Dan Partland, it is good to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I want to let people know that Unfit, which we'll be talking about for the hour, is streaming now on multiple platforms, all of which are listed at unfitfilm.com. Dan, I mentioned those three groups, that the convinced, the wavering, and the unpersuadable. Tell me in that realm who this movie is aimed at. When we set out to do the film, we really looked at that question a lot about who the audience is. And I think we, we more or less broke it into pieces the way you did, which is there seems like um, the polarization in the country means that there are more people who are set on one side, uh, one side or another than mm-hmm. ever. And that the narrow sliver in the middle that's persuadable seems to be forever shrinking. And I think that that's been happening for a while, but it's more acute than ever under Donald Trump because of some ways that he's polarizing himself. So yes, we, we you know, there's a, there's a line that um, we, we use sometimes to talk about the film Um, which is that we're not looking to change minds so much as change the discussion. Mm -hmm. And that really was part of the goal right from the beginning, which was even if we may only be talking about, was it 5% who are reachable, who are undecided, who haven't figured out what they think about this president? Yes, the film is aimed at them. But even for for um, for the people who already have thoughts about this president and what's going on in the country, we really wanted to give different a different language and framework for talking about it. And I think what it really did for a lot of people, and as people see the film, I think this is growing, is that it gave some shape for talking about a lot of things that people saw every day, had an intuitive understanding about, but didn't necessarily have the backup for understanding it, both as a psychological phenomenon mm-hmm. and also as a historical phenomenon. You know, the the arc of the film surprised me because it's not uncommon to speculate about the case of Donald Trump's mental capacity, uh, his his mental build, the way he's put together. But I didn't expect it to really go into authoritarianism and how he fits into that realm historically and in terms of, you know, geographically with other countries and other leaders. And it really is true. 
those two things, one inevitably leads to the other. When you're looking at the mentality of a person who's sitting in one of the most powerful seats in the world, it really does make sense that it's going to stretch into where he fits in the larger puzzle. And I have to commend you for going into that. It was an unexpected area. It would have been very easy to make a film about, gee, look how his mind works, period. Yeah, look, I think um, we came to that realization pretty early, meaning, well, let me even take a step back to reset on some of the origins of the film. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, 2017, 2018, by then, you know, rather quickly, we were all, I think, anybody who follows the news was getting fairly exhausted in the endless series of scandals that were coming out of this administration. And there were there was, to me, a lack of insight in the way it was covered in the news. There was an obvious sameness to the quality of these scandals, but not a lot of connective tissue. And so the news, 24-hour news cycle, cable news was, and print media are just bouncing around from one thing to another. We're talking about foreign policy. We're talking about domestic policy. We're talking about taxes. We're talking about trade. And But there was a, this unmistakable sameness, and that was really what led us to this route through it. The sameness was obviously Trump's own personal psychology. Mm -hmm. And his personal psychology is fascinating kind of in and of itself because he's such a, you know, he's such a peculiar character with such a uh, distinct set of psychological traits, let's say. But ultimately, the psychology of one man is not that important in the grand scheme of things. I think that anyone who is looking at where we are in the United States right now understands that there have always been guys like Trump. Mm. The more important question is, why at this moment in history was the ground fertile for his movement, if you will, to, you know, just to grow roots? And, and that is a really much bigger and more complicated question that goes to what is the psychology of the electorate that voted for him. Yes. The general psychology of the electorate in America right now. And so we definitely wanted to um, plumb those depths and get some insight into what the Trump appeal is. And, you know, I think the, the, the amount of the film that is spent on authoritarianism, which we, we can talk about as a separate item, but that part was a little bit unexpected. I think that um, it was something that it wasn't totally unexpected. I had some insight into the parallels with history. It felt like uh, what I imagined some of those historical chapters were like. Um, but very quickly after really t drilling down with experts, we could see that um, the, the most important thing to talk about in this moment is not the quirks of Donald Trump's psychology and whatever his you know, diagnoses may be, um, but to really understand where the world is at and understand the conditions on the ground that really lead to a rise of authoritarianism, which I think it's safe to say is happening around the world right now. I'm talking right now to Dan Partland, if you're just joining us. He is the director and producer of the movie Unfit, which is streaming online right now. And Dan, the movie is packed with all kinds of names that we recognize. You know, Anthony Scaramucci, we know who he is, and George Conway and Bill Crystal. But a lot of the names are less well-known to us and need to be known to us. There's a group called Duty to Warn. It was founded by a man by the name of John Gartner. And John Gartner is... His credentials are clear. He's from Princeton. He's from Johns, Johns Hopkins. He's an author. He's a psychologist. 
And he felt driven to put this group together because he was persuaded from his own faculties of observation and his own obligation as someone who understands what he's seeing to say something to the world. And every time I've talked to Justin Frank on the air, I've talked to a number of people on the air about this, about duty to warn, about the book Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And inevitably, the Goldwater rule comes up. The Goldwater rule has been used as a reason for people not to discuss. It's not right for a professional, to a mental professional, to talk about someone else's case whom he hasn't examined. And I want to hear just a moment. I think uh, John Gartner did a great job explaining exactly why that doesn't apply here. So let's give a listen to him. I actually interviewed the last living member of the ethics committee that formed the Goldwater Rule, and he said... These were obviously wild speculations. They weren't founded in fact, and so they embarrassed the profession because they were really uh, idle speculations. And so that's why they passed that rule. He said to me, we never intended it to be a gag order, meaning that psychiatrists could never speak up about public figures. We just didn't want them making unfounded statements. The Goldwater rule today has been incorrectly extended. And the incorrect part about it is that it now is being used to suppress speech about things that are knowable. It's as nonsensical as saying an orthopedic surgeon shouldn't be able to watch somebody in a football injury and say that person probably has an ACL tear. He can say it because he's an expert in the field. Something happened, he observed it. And that latter voice is Lance, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, you can correct me, Dan, that's Lance Dotus, is that correct? That's correct, Dr. Otis, yes. And, you know, between the two of them, they make a really good case that there is an obligation to let people know what's going on with this. There's, in fact, a a second judgment that came out, which says that it is your job to warn people. If one of your clients, for example, says, I'm about to do something dangerous or you observe dangerous behavior on their behalf, it is incumbent upon you to go out to the wider world and say, here is this dangerous person. I hear resistance to understanding this interpretation of Goldwater and the latter interpretation of the duty to warn. It seems to be, you know, knocking on a blank door to get that through to some people. I I think you explained it very well. Well, I mean, this is, it it needed to be addressed in the film. I think it's a, I think it's a, on its own, it's a fascinating um, dilemma, really. And it's listed in the APA, the American Psychiatric Association's uh, guidelines, it's listed as an unresolved um, ethical dilemma. But let me just backtrack, because I don't know how much your your, uh, listeners are familiar with what the basic shape of that debate is. But basically, the Goldwater Rule was issued in, it, it actually came down in the 70s, but it was based on the 1964 campaign where a now defunct magazine, Fact Magazine, published an article about whether Barry Goldwater was um, of stable mind, sound mind. And they had, you know, hundreds of uh, mental health professionals weighing in on it. And they were really speculating at a lot of things that they couldn't possibly know about, about his inner life. There's a part of, you know, psychology that is about understanding what makes people tick. Um, but there's also a part that is about observing behavior. Right. And I think a lot of the um, commentary in that article was 
off base. It was people, even qualified professionals, but speaking out of their depth on things that they just couldn't really know about. And Fact Magazine was found uh, found liable or, or for defamation and sued and put out of business over that. And in the wake of that, the APA did set out this guideline that prohibits mental health professionals from commenting publicly on uh, political figures unless they had seen them in the clinical setting. Now, if you think about this, there's a really noble goal behind that. I think it's important to try to stop mental health from becoming politicized. I think that would be a terrible thing if anybody could just, you know, comment this guy is this guy is unfit for X, Y, and Z without actually um, being able to substantiate that case. And especially if they were doing it when they were speculating on inner psychological, you know, inner life of a person. Right. But this is um, the the problem with that though, if you think about it, is you're not allowed to speak mental health professional is not allowed to speak about a patient unless they've seen them in a clinical environment. But the number one, maybe the most important value of a mental health professional is confidentiality. So by definition, any mental health professional who had seen the patient in a clinical environment also could not speak. And so essentially what the rule does, if you just take it on face value, is it leaves the discussion of someone's psychology out of, you know, it leaves it off the table, leaves it out of the discussion completely when evaluating, evaluating a candidate for public office. And I think that the voices of mental health professionals were really missed. I mean, the presidential campaigns in America are exhaustive inventories. I mean, they, we really vet people. But this was an area where there was a lot of silence and where I think there was a lot to that was easily observable that the public really had a right to know before entering, you know, before elect, before casting a vote. Mm -hmm. So they were silenced. The APA did see this coming. And in the run up to the 2016 election, they did issue um, a enhanced guidelines that reiterated the importance of this rule. Now, the, what the doctors and the mental health professionals in the film would say is that, no, this, that is the rule being misinterpreted because we have diagnostic criteria, criteria that are for behavior. And these, these kinds of diagnoses are best made from observing people. And it's actually harder to make this kind of a diagnosis from a clinical interview. A clinical now, that interview. was, yeah, that was a part that surprised me, but it, it does make sense. Uh, and as explained by your lead guest, mm. some, you can be lied to by someone who's sitting in a chair in front of you. You're conducting this examination. You don't know what's true and what's not. Your own eyes can tell you more. But that, exactly. And, and the... You know, typical, think about it, typical psychologist, psychiatrist, they don't have footage of their patient, what they're doing on their off hours. They don't have hours and hours of observational material. They don't have access to all their emails and tweets, their public and private statements through, you know, secondhand accounts. From So with the, with the president, you actually have a lot, a lot of information to go on. And the diagnosis is for behavioral 
disorder is made through observation of behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that is really amply on record for Donald Trump. Now, the second point that you were bringing along to is the issue of this unresolved ethical dilemma between, on one hand, the Goldwater Rule, which seeks to um, prohibit mental health from becoming politicized and used in the political context. And they do it by this embargo on commenting on someone who you haven't seen clinically. But on the other end of the spectrum is what they call the Tarasov rule. Mm -hmm. The Tarasov rule is based on a, a case um, dating back, I think, also to the late 70s, maybe in the 80s, when uh, the psychologist had interviewed uh, or had, you know, had a clinic, you know, saw a patient in a clinical setting and the, cl and the patient um, expressed their uh, intention to cause harm to another person. And the guidelines at the time for, for um, a therapist were that you needed to stand with patient confidentiality. And I don't think anyone today believes that that's an appropriate thing to do when there is evidence of imminent harm. And this patient, in this case, he did, uh, he did go out and he killed the girlfriend. Right. He, uh, he said that he that was his thought, that was his intention. The psychiatrist kept with the ethical guidelines of their um, profession, and they didn't warn officials. And in the wake of that, the APA really did go out and, and try to address this. And the concept of the duty to warn was really enshrined first in the ethical guidelines um, for the profession, um, and then it's really been followed in law. So that really in all 50 states, there's in one form or another, there is a law that mandates reporting from uh, professionals if they have reason to believe that there is imminent danger, if they can make a case for people being in imminent danger. And so, of course, this is not an exact analogy. Right. Uh, they don't have access to private information that Donald Trump is going to harm somebody. On the other hand, with the stakes as large as they are, um, the psych, the mental health professionals, psychologists and psychiatrists both appear in the film, um, by and large felt very strongly that it was their moral and ethical duty to warn the public about the patterns of behavior that they see and what the latest science says about people who um, behave in that way. Well, we've got about a minute till our break, so I want to let our listeners know if you're just joining us. This is Dan Partland, and he is the power behind the new movie Unfit. It's an examination of Donald Trump and his capacity, his mental capacity, his mental makeup, and where he fits into the larger echelon of dangerous rulers throughout both history and around the world right now. You are listening to In Deep. We are back with live shows. We are now emanating to you every week from the studios of KALW in San Francisco. As you were hearing earlier on In Deep, a lot of our shows originate with Kepler's books in Menlo Park. We're still doing those interviews. You'll be shortly hearing a taped interview with Robert Reich, another with Tom Nichols, and more. You can see those upcoming guests by going to keplers.org. And check out the Refresh the Page programming. Those are the upcoming live shows. We'll be right back. Here is our tree. Primitively grows 
When we go to bed, scarecrows from the far east come to eat its tender fruit. And I've thought the best way to protect our tree is by building walls, walls like unicorns in full glory and galore and even stronger than the walls of Jericho but glad then my friend that in a few we shall reap a brotherly what we was dreamt of having enough of the starving it is love that is the root of all And thank you, my friend, for trusting me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, money. Hallelujah, money. Hallelujah, money. You're listening to Indie by Angie Cuero. We are talking about the movie Unfit to the Psychology of Donald Trump. You can find more information, including the many platforms on which it's streaming right now, at unfitfilm.com. And Dan Partland is director and producer. Dan, I want to get into the meat of some of the psychological segment of the film. And John Gartner, to uh, remind our listeners, is the founder of Duty to Warn. He is a, a very well-credentialed psychologist and author, and he puts Donald Trump on the couch, theoretically, and he talks about what he is, what diagnosable or what diagnosis might be applicable to him. And he comes up with a phrase that a lot of us have heard, and that is malignant narcissist. He lays out the four elements of malignant narcissism, which is narcissism itself, paranoia and a sense of victimization, antisocial personality disorder, which includes constant lying and exploiting other people, and sadism. Tell me how he makes the case for, of all of these, I think we can observe a lot of these. For example, when we watched a, uh, one of his news conferences, it, it's easy to find some of these. Sadism might be a little harder to attribute to him. So how does that manifest itself, according to the professionals? Wow. Well, um, first of all, uh, about the, the diagnosis of malignant narcissism, I'll say that it's, you know, it's not precisely, it, it is not a listed disorder in the manual of um, diagnostic um, mental and emotional disorders, the DSM fifth edition. It is kind of a phenomenon. It's a constellation of those four different um, diagnoses that are in the DSM five. You said narcissistic personality disorder. And I want to specify that that's different than just being narcissistic. We'll come back to that in a second, but narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, paranoia, and sadism. Um, And this diagnosis was really developed by Eric Fromm. He was a legendary um, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, who survived the Nazis and was really looking to understand, get insight into how Hitler happened, really. And what he, 
he found this path through understanding the psychology that really looked at those four traits. There are other definitions of malignant narcissism, um, but the one that we use and that Dr. Gardner uses in the film is really emanates from Eric Fromm's uh, research. As far as um, sadism, I think sadism is, you know, it's hard to know what's in somebody's heart. And that's why you, you look at behavior. And the fact of a, there's a there is a real strain in Donald Trump's tactics that don't just look to win an argument. They look to vanquish an enemy. Mm-hmm. They look to, um, you know, and there's a the polite term that we've all started to use, which this is the, the makes it sound benign, but the owning the libs. Let's just start with that concept that like a lot of what drives the Trump presidency's messaging is not to just win an argument, but to own the libs, to try to infuriate the other side um, and to make them look foolish. Now that may not be sadism on its own, but when you look at specific policy initiatives of what his instinct was for how to execute a specific policy, it, it really does seem to take pleasure in harming the enemy, mm-hmm. in harming the opposition. And so the, the quintessential example of this is the family separation policy at the border. When you decide that, you know, we have to stop immigration, that there's an important discussion to have there. I mean, I, there's no question we need immigration reform. Um, borders shouldn't be open. I mean, that's my opinion, people can argue, but I don't, I don't think they should be. I think there's a lot of different ways to tackle that mm-hmm. problem. But the way this administration chose to tackle that problem was to believe that if they separated children from their parents, that this would be a deterrent that, I mean, imagine the, the cruelty, and Dr. Gartner speaks about this in the film, but imagine the cruelty of the mind that really thinks that is appropriate public policy for a whole country, is to steal the children from their parents. Like, it's like a, you know, Rapunzel era um, kind of tactic. It's like of, of, of another time in a fantasy world where evil is just so emboldened that people are allowed to do that. Let's take the firstborn child from every, like this literally anybody who came across the border with kids to try to find a better life in the United States um, was subject to losing their children. Mm -hmm. You know, many of those children are still separated from their parents right now. And all of those children um, are going to have profound psychological damage probably for the rest of their lives. I mean, some of these kids are, were, were babies and, you know, development, developing mind, you know, their ability to understand why their parents abandoned them and they were in this facility, even if they, they get, you know, I mean, I, my kids are, are older than that, but, you know, as a young child, that, that's a, a devastating experience that they never fully recover from. You know, and, and that reminds me of, of one of the things that Trump had to say in the movie. And this was an excerpt from a BBC interview. And it just talks about his point of view where people are concerned who he believes have offended him or crossed his lines. Let's give a listen to that. Sure. You talk in your book about getting even, the importance of getting even. Is, is revenge sweet? 
I believe strongly in getting even. If somebody has hurt you, if somebody's gone out of their way to hurt you, I think that if you have the opportunity, you should certainly go out of your way to do a number on them. And I've had more criticism about that one statement in my book than any other statement. The clergy is called, the ministers, the priests, the rabbis, they've all said, what a terrible thing to say. That's against our teachings. I just believe it. I believe in an eye for an eye. And we've seen that play out, especially on the international scene, when he feels that he's been shunned or slighted or otherwise slammed by someone from overseas. We see that in the way that he treats them. We actually see it as when he looks at the Senate or when he looks at the House and he engages in in nicknames that are disrespectful in uh, categorizing people in ways that make them seem the enemy themselves. You really see this play out in the way he acts out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, on the one hand, I think that it's interesting that you chose that clip because I think there's actually a fair amount of complexity to it for a lot of Americans, because I think that on the one hand, there is a certain um, logic to it that feels a little bit attractive, which is, you know, just think about parents, you know, telling their kids how to handle bullies on, on the schoolyard. And we're not that far from an era when, you know, I think it was fairly universal that all parents would say, you know, you know, he hit you, you, you hit him back. You got to learn to stand up for yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, Donald Trump may be speaking about that. And I think that in the modern era where we, you know, try to teach kids empathy and compassion and conflict resolution, a lot of that sometimes sounds silly to people that like, well, kid hit you on the, on the playground, maybe you should, you know, look, let's look at some techniques here. You know, some of that sounds um, sort of needlessly progressive and woke um, to a lot of the country. On the other hand, really what he says, I mean, it's fairly crystalline. I mean, it's concise. He says he believes in an eye for an eye. I mean, that's not random language. That's the code of Hammurabi. That is a, that is a code from around 2000 BC. Mm -hmm. Um, And I surely think that in the, you know, intervening 4,000 years, there's been a lot of great thought and writing and, and uh, insight into humanity and into conflict resolution and, and I think that we just don't believe that anymore. I mean, I know I don't. An eye for an eye does not sound constructive at all. It sounds brutal. Mm-hmm. But I think that, um, and, you know, there was, I don't know, it was a Gandhi uh, saying, I believe, that an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. And a lot of people do respond with this as a kind of innate programming. Um, because it does, on some level, make emotional sense. It feels right on the playground. Um, it's not an appropriate stance. I, I don't think for an adult, it's certainly not an appropriate stance for government. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this is something that a lot of people wrestle with, and it's not because of um, it's not because they're not intelligent. It's it's because of the ways that it rhymes with our human nature. And the film tries on some level to explore some of those ideas as well. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about another of his techniques, and that's gaslighting. Oh, yeah. And on a completely trivial aside, I just want to commend you for picking a lesser-known version of the movie Gaslighting to use in the, in the oh, film. Thank you. Because as an old film freak, I thought, wow, he's using the one nobody knows about. But uh, you have Dr. Romani Dervasula, who's talking about how gaslighting works. And we've seen Donald Trump get up before people or talk to a journalist and essentially say, 
Stop believing everything you are seeing and hearing, and I will tell you the alternative facts. I will tell you the truth. That's downright scary, not only to watch him, but to see the people who buy into it. Well, yeah, I mean, so um, Romney Dravosila, she's a wonderful um, psychologist, teacher, author, um, and her area of expertise is really the area of narcissistic abuse. And we, we did shoot a lot of material about nature of narcissistic abuse because I think part of the challenge of the film was to find ways to humanize a lot of these issues because they're so abstract when you're talking about you know, governmental policy. It does, it's hard to understand the, the makeup of a person, of a human being, and how that might feel to actually be in a relationship with a human being who had these traits. But in the end, you know, very little of that um, made the film because there was much else to do. And, but the important thing that she really drives in the film is to talk about the nature of gaslighting. And uh, yes, the reference to the old film, it was first to play, and then two different films uh, were made about it in, in just a few years. Um, but yeah, it's this, uh, it, it is a, the, the derivation of the term is, a, is from that play and film where the uh, protagonist is slowly being driven crazy by her husband, who is sneaking into the house at times when, when she doesn't know it. And when he turns on the light, it causes, you know, in a, in, a, in a house that's piped with gas for lighting, when you turn on one light, all the other lights go down a little bit. And then he denies that he was there and he makes sure the staff denies that he was there. And it's slowly by asking her to accept uh, it, something that is obviously untrue. There are too many signs that he was there. Um, he's slowly driving her crazy. And the point to that is that this actually renders people more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And when they are confused themselves about which way is up, about what you did and didn't say, they are more likely to cede control to you. And I think that that really is what Trump has successfully done. People, you know, he says one thing, he goes out, he contradicts it. And eventually it starts to feel like too big a burden to track all of these things. And like, let's just, you know, if we like them, let's just listen to them and stop trying to keep track of everything. So yes, I think the example, the quintessential example of this is when he announces to the nation in a widely televised speech, what you're hearing and what you're seeing is not true. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that, that, that should be put on a bumper sticker. I mean, anybody who says <laughs> this should be distrusted, right? I mean, what you're seeing and what you're hearing is not true. Um, I mean, this is this is a, you know, I mean, what he's trying to communicate to his support is um, he has a special vantage point and he knows the real thing and just trust me. And it's very interesting because I think the world is very complicated right now. And mm. It is very hard. I think our information systems are, you know, deeply contaminated. What we thought was really wonderful about the democratizing nature of social media and access online, every single person is a publisher. But in the, for, for, and maybe that will come to a great and glorious head at some point in the future. But for the moment, 
we're really wrestling with how to handle that because I think it's very hard for people to know what is true and what isn't when absolutely every person is their own publishing platform. And we put the reporting of the Washington Post on the same plane with your favorite blogger or Instagram, you know, uh, or, or your Instagram, uh, whoever you follow on Instagram. That's a really good point. Really good point. So, the destabilization of that is is what comes to the point. And, and wonderful scholar in the film, Ruth Ben Gayet, um, Giat, excuse me, um, who is really the world's foremost authority in a lot of ways on authoritarianism. Her point about this is that is that the authoritarian makes such a deep bond with his audience um, because he's speaking to them emotionally, and they eventually they believe. They don't need to believe him because they believe in him. Mm-hmm. They so much see themselves and th- how they would like to be and how they think and feel reflected in this person that they're willing to cede control. And so there's something relaxing about that in a time of great upheaval, which I think we have to say we're in. Mm-hmm. That you could let go of your own faculties and trust the paternal figure who says things like, what you're seeing and hearing isn't true. Just listen to me. And I alone can fix it. I mean, these are very simple and yet very, very potent messages to anyone who has made that kind of emotional bond with him. In fact, you also talked to uh, Sheldon Solomon, who is another uh, mental health professional, and he came up with this excellent explanation as to why people would believe something that is demonstrably not true. Let's listen to him. When people are economically and psychologically insecure, when somebody comes along and confidently proclaims in very simple terms uh, that uh, they will keep them safe, they will make them prosper, they will bring back the good old days, that's the psychological hook. Once you get on board psychologically, once you commit uh, to a demagoguish ideologue, that puts up a fact-proof screen between you and the world. Once you are fully on board, there's no rational argument that will alter your opinion. Rationality will lose every time. Which is really scary. We've got about a minute left in this segment, Dan. I'd like to know if in the making of this film, you encountered some of those people who are immune to the facts. Well, sure. I mean, I, um, I, 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 my failure is that I wasn't able to enlist more of them in trying to be in the, in the film. I, I definitely wanted to have a project where we got to hear from a lot of what we were calling sort of end users, people who regular folks, not just experts. Um, The material turned out to be very uh, complex and abstract and um, having expert voices really ended up being uh, the guiding principle. But absolutely, uh, I think all of us have run into how very difficult it is to change anyone's mind about this topic. The cliche is Thanksgiving when you're sitting there with someone and resisting the urge to throw mashed potatoes at them. (laughs) That's the hard one. (laughs) I'm talking to Dan Partland. We're going to be back to him in just a moment. We're talking about Unfit, the psychology of Donald Trump, the film that fits very much in line with The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, a book along the same lines, and the Duty to Warn group, 
which is profiled in the movie. We're going to come back in just a moment. You are listening to The Return of Indeep here on KLW. Welcome back to In Deep. I'm Angie Coro. Very happy to be talking to Dan Partland about the new movie, Unfit. It's both a psychological examination of Donald Trump, the move to get that word out by many professionals, and a great historic explanation of where he fits with the strong men in the world, not just in history, but the people who are in control in many countries throughout the world as well, and how those people are walking hand in hand in a dangerous direction. In fact, let's listen to Malcolm Nance was talking about the dangerous time that we're in. He's in the movie as well. We are in a battle for our political and ideological lives. What was America is now under siege around the world. This is a dangerous, dangerous time for the world. Are we moving to a time where the 1930s have been forgotten and people are viewing it as a template, not a warning? That is a way to bring us into that latter half of the film, Dan, and that is this comparison of where Donald Trump fits into this theme. And what we're looking at with him is, as much as he's dismissed as a clown and a buffoon and someone who can't spell or punctuate, he is, in fact, a good fit for the template of the strongman. Can you put that into some context for us? Yeah, I'll try. I mean, to me, I think it it goes back to actually your framing from the top, which is that, you know, there were these th- three groups, the, the groups who are opposed to Trump, the groups who are deeply in his thrall, and then the groups of persuadables in the middle. I think one, we said that we were trying to change the conversation and give out a different framework for people to understand this topic and seeing it through the lens of authoritarian history was one important one. But 
it was also about the fact, I, I think we also had an audience in mind that were a lot of moderates who in just didn't seem to really take Trump seriously or the threat of Trump seriously. And that includes some people who, who may well vote for him, like a lot of uh, Republicans who, I don't like him, but I like Republicanism. And he's, he's basically moving on my values, on my agenda. Yeah, he's still uh, our guy. He's our guy. And then a lot of people in the center who kind of like, okay, Trump's, you know, Trump's crazy. You know, like people say like, oh my God, he's crazy. Everybody knows that he's crazy. But we're talking about like, you know, like your, like your crazy uncle who would make a U-turn in front of a cop, you know, yes. go the wrong way down the one way street, you know, like he's crazy. Like, and we were trying to say like, no, he's not crazy like that. Um, that's not the analogy here. Um, the analogy is something very, very serious and very, very dangerous. So the authoritarianism um, angle that uh, the, the film really looks at is back to this place. There've always been guys like Trump. Why is the ground soft right now for people like that um, to take power? And I think that, you know, what we found when we dug into this is this is really happening all over the globe right now. Mm -hmm. There is a strong move towards right-wing authoritarians on a, in a lot of hotspots around the globe. And a few years ago, nobody would have thought that the United States of all places, you know, Western democracies would have been a place where that was even possible. Right. But it's more than possible. It's, it's happening. And I think when you look at how history was taught to people of my era, I, I think we didn't teach it right. I think we looked at these great moral failings throughout history and talked about them as though we had overcome them. Mm -hmm. You know, that we now we're beyond that. You know, there was, you know, from, you know, slavery. And you just look at like this mass psychosis. How could that many people have been complicit in such a, you know, in such a corrupt scheme, such a amoral screen, immoral screen. Um, but then straight up on through, you know, through the 20th century, um, fascists, you know, Nazis, how did so many good people, good German people go along with that scheme? Mm -hmm. How many in, you know, McCarthyism in the 50s, how many uh, good, decent Americans could go along with that scheme? The Jim Crow South, how many good, decent Americans, our feelings about, um, you know, uh, LGBTQ population in in my lifetime in the 80s you know how did so many good and decent people go along with that scheme and I think what's it, it unmistakable when you really drill down is that it is a deep part of human nature mm -hmm. and that teaching it as though we have graduated beyond that nothing like this would ever happen again is really the wrong way mm -hmm. the important thing to teach is that human beings this is a, this is not just a bug that happened once or time. It's a feature of the human organism that we are susceptible to the charms of authoritarians in times of great upheaval. You know, and, and so what we need to teach is, is to be you know, vigilant. We need to teach that we have to be on guard for it all the time. And I think our guard was really down. I think we really saw during the Obama years, which seems like a forever ago, 
Um, but we really saw, we, we felt like, we felt that, you know, the arc of the moral history bending towards justice and that if we just stayed the course, it would keep happening. But the truth is, you know, the, that that is, when you look at hundreds of years, that is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at, you know, decades, um, it's, it's a struggle and it's going to be a struggle the whole way. And we need to re-enlist Americans in that struggle for freedom and justice because they've started to go down this nationalist role. When you put up the flag, what does that stand for? And I get that everybody sees that it stands for us, rah, rah, let's go us. Right. Great. But it's supposed to be about, us is supposed to be about certain things. (laughs) And it was supposed to be about um, liberty. It was supposed to be about freedom. It was supposed to be about equality of all people. Shared standards. And I think we've lost connection with, with that part of the American story. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I want to address this comparison to Hitler and the Nazis, which is often dismissed by people as at least inaccurate and at worst distasteful because yeah. it's such an extreme thing. The most downloaded show in the history of Indeep has been the Trump-Hitler comparison. <laughs> And that featured two eminently qualified historians who both studied the history of war and the rise of Hitler and explained exactly how it does accurately track the way he talks, the way he governs, the way he acts, that it is, in fact, a good comparison. And that came up in your movie. And there's mm-hmm. actually there's, there's a portion where Richard Spencer, who's an acknowledged white nationalist, starts out with a Nazi salute at an alt-right convention. And then it goes into John Gartner, who is the primary guest in your movie, explaining why the comparison to Hitler is apt. So let's listen to that. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! So is it appropriate to compare Trump to Hitler? I compare Trump to Hitler all the time. And it makes people angry, and I'm not going to stop doing it. And I'll tell you why I'm not going to stop doing it. Because my father was a great historian and student of Jewish history. And he used to say to me all the time, John, the meaning of history is in the Holocaust. We cannot be silent. It's not that he's as bad as Hitler or that he's the equivalent of Hitler, but he has the same diagnosis as Hitler. He's in the same category, that it's a psychological type that can be more or less extreme, but they share these common characteristics. They're cut from the same cloth. And that makes it so much easier to understand. I, I, I wonder, Dan, if you came across resistance when you were putting this movie together from people who did think it was inapt or distasteful. And, you know, that led you to get this kind of quotation from John Gartner. Yeah, I definitely did. And, and, and I also, at the time that we were filming it, I was also very uneasy with it, and which is why I asked that question. I mean, is it really appropriate to compare? And, you know, I, I've traveled a long way on that topic because, of course, I, I mean, you know, I've heard people mock that point, like, oh, yeah, sure, Trump and Hitler, the same one killed 12 men responsible for 12 million people, and the other one is, you know, is just cutting taxes, and, you know, it's a buffoon. Um, look, I don't, I think um, the point to the comparison to Hitler is not that they're all equivalent. They're not, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, you know, Hitler is in the in the pantheon of monsters in the you know the history of the planet. I don't know that Trump is going to get there. He certainly isn't there yet. Um, but we're also talking about trying to squelch something, a, a movement that is growing right now. And if you look at what was said, you can find that in the New York Times from 1922. I mean, remember Hitler was elected 
He was democratically elected. Mussolini was democratically elected. These were enlightened societies that chose these guys. And once they had their, their hooks into it and had manipulated the power structure that existed in, the, in Germany and in Italy, respectively, um, they then crushed the power structure and just decided to stay. And there were plenty of people who liked that. You know, there were plenty of people who didn't, but there were plenty of people who liked that. So we're, we're not at that point yet, but I think we see how far our, our movement towards authoritarianism has happened already in four years. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at what was said in the New York Times in 1922 when Hitler was first coming to power, it was exactly like the kinds of things that people say about said about Trump in 2015. The problem is what people are saying about Trump now in in 2020 is more like what people were saying about Hitler in the late 30s. Like he didn't just move a few steps, he moved a long, long way. And I don't think the point to learning from history is that you really shouldn't say anything you shouldn't make a comparison to Hitler or other monsters until they've really achieved similar amounts of yes. horror. You yes. know, like that, that just seems incredibly misguided. <laughs> what we want to do is not not see if any, if he could get to a similar status of, of evil and cruelty, which I don't think he's capable of because I think, you know, what 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 was special about Hitler in the in the realm of of these authoritarians is actually how very competent and hardworking he was, which is really very unusual for a populist authoritarian leader. They mostly are really good at wielding power, which I think Trump is, and really, really inept, I mean, positively incompetent at governance. And so whatever they can do, their movements tend to peter out um, because they aren't really good at governing. They're only good at whipping up the crowd and intimidating their adversaries. Dan Partland, producer and director of the movie Unfit. There is some levity in the film, and I don't want to leave that out. And you got a little <laughs> bit, you got teased by Salon Magazine a little bit for bringing in a golf professional to say, hey, yeah. Don, Donald Trump cheats at golf. Tell me why that's relevant. Oh, look, I think, you know, I've read a lot of books about Trump, and I think that one of the, the most brilliant, the one that if I, you know, if I were a more talented person, I would have loved to have written is is Rick Riley's um, brilliantly insightful book called Commander and Cheat. Um, and it's uh, Rick Riley is a legendary um, sports writer, um, has written a lot about golf and has covered Trump extensively for many decades. And so he actually has a lot of very firsthand experience with him. And what he draws out really brilliant masterfully is the analogy about if you're, if you're willing to cheat at golf, you're willing to cheat at other things. And he shows how, how Trump's psychology is, is on display at every different point on the golf course and how he's approached his business and that we're seeing all of that um, translated into government. And it's a, it is a hysterically funny book, um, even though it is also really uh, frustrating and upsetting because it's quite obvious that this is just who the guy is. And you can look at, you know, we can look at any different week in the Trump presidency and talk about things that happen and make all these same points because the constant in all of this is Donald Trump's psychology. It's on display for us every day. We want to just teach people to recognize it to see it, to call it by its name, and to have that be an important part of the conversation. Because ultimately, immigration policy, this or that, yeah, there's ways to get it wrong, there's ways to get it right. 
Um, but this isn't really a policy election. This is really a, an election about what our nature is and who we want representing us and who we want to be. And as the case is pretty is made pretty persuasively in the movie, it's also a case of the future of the world. I want to close this out with a quote from Malcolm Nance. It's it's a bit on the long side, but it makes a, a fabulous and very somber closing point. Let's hear that. Mark. T minus 50. Not one bomb's going. Multiple bombs are going. So when you choose that option, that missile will blow that country up in 35 minutes. And there is no turning it off. Once they boost into space, they're gone. The president has the authority to order a nuclear attack, including a first strike. And uh, it is extremely unlikely uh, that the uh, military command would not take his orders. The president can decide that France is a national security threat and he can order an ICBM strike. So what do you say to people who, who say that Trump is a bluffer, he's a strategic thinker, he won't do this? Are you willing to bet your children's life on that? Are you willing to bet the lives of every person in this nation on that? And if you're willing to say that about any person who will pathologically lie to you, to your face, documentable, quantifiably lie to you, your wife, your children on a daily basis, then you don't really understand what the stakes are. Bit of a somber thought to end on, but the case is made very well in the movie that this does have the potential to happen. Dan, what would you say to the people, and, and we've got about a minute left here, what would you say to the people who feel that that scenario is out of the blue and inconceivable? Look, the, you know, it's very interesting. When we, when we made the film, we, there was a certain number of the professionals in the film where the nuclear threat really was the underpinning for the urgency to them. They saw us as being able to survive all kinds of other insults from the Trump administration and from his patterns. But the, the one that the United States is uniquely vulnerable to is the monarchical nature of the United States nuclear program. And how could we know all of this about how unstable Donald Trump is and still give him the, the sole authority to deploy nuclear weapons? How could we possibly do that? That That is, the in the end, is the biggest threat. In some senses, I think- and you know what? To- I got to leave it there, Dan, but I very much appreciate it. The film is Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. You can find information at unfitfilm.com. Thanks to Damian Miner at the board for InDeep, engineers Phil Hartman. Special thanks to Adam Siegel at the 2050 Group. Tina Pamantuan is the GM of KLW San Francisco. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but I know it's going to get better. Yes, I know it's going to get better because it almost always does. I can't say much about the who and how, but I believe it just because. Day by day, I bonds on a From these pious thieves It's gonna get worse Before it gets better It's gonna get worse
before it gets better. It's gonna get worse before it gets better, but I know it's gonna get better. Well, I 